Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, everyone. This is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, my guest is Greg Zuckerman, a special writer at the Wall Street Journal. He's an investigative reporter who writes about business and investing topics. He was a prior guest on the show. And today we're going to be discussing FTX. FTX is a now bankrupt company. It was one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges. Customers were able to use FTX to trade digital currencies for other digital currencies or for traditional money. Sam Bankman-Fried, known as SBF, was the founder of FTX. And according to the New York Times, the U.S. Attorney's Office this week called FTX's collapse one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. I think you'll find the conversation interesting. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Welcome, everyone, back to The Diplomat. Special edition today, Greg Zuckerman writes for The Wall Street Journal. Superstar Zuckerman. Um, he has written a bunch of articles on FTX. Very, very timely topic right now. FTX, based on the criminal indictment that was unsealed on December 13th and a complaint by the SEC, the prosecutors say that FTX was engaged in a massive, years-long fraud they, th- they say that Sam Bankman-Fried, known as SBF, that his lies stretched back to the very beginning. And the U.S. Attorney's Office called the collapse of FTX one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. With that introduction, Greg, let's talk, because you've written so extensively on FTX. Tell us, for my listeners who may not be following too closely, what was FTX, who was Sam, and how did this all happen? Sure, and uh, great to be here. I'll start uh, with a little history. Sam Bankman-Fried uh, grew up uh, on, more or less, on the Stanford University campus. Both his parents are professors, uh, law professors, um, and he went to MIT. At MIT, he was thinking about what to do with his life. He was trying to help animals. He's a big believer in, in, in giving back, um, seemingly or supposedly, and he um, met an individual who uh, helped um, lead uh, or helps lead a movement called uh, Effective Altruism, or EA as it's called. The idea behind EA is to uh, do charity, uh, philanthropy with um, data-driven uh, um, methods to do it properly and effectively. And this individual named Will McCaskill said, hey, instead of going to do good in this world right away, why don't you go make a lot of money? And then you can give away a lot of a lot of money down the road. That's the most effective use of your time and effort. 
So he, um, he being Sam Bankman-Fried, otherwise known as SBF, uh, Sam left to uh, started uh, went to a, a training firm um, called uh, Jane Street, a very well respected trading firm on Wall Street. Spent a few years there, and then he left uh, that firm to make money in the crypto market to to trade. He started a firm called Alameda Research, and we can talk about that if you like. And then from there, he started an exchange called FTX, which became the second largest. It started in 2019. And um, for a while, until just just a few months ago, he was on top of the world, and he no longer is. So let's get to that. You wrote an interesting article in November in the Wall Street Journal. The title was uh, How Sam Bankman-Fried Went from Crypto Golden Boy to Villain. Uh, This is probably even before everything got uncovered. Uh, Was he a golden boy at the time, to everybody's knowledge? And I'll point to the fact that Lots of boldface names associated themselves with SBF. Bill Clinton, Tom Brady, Katy Perry, so many celebrities. Let's talk about his golden boy status and how that was achieved. Sure. So, yeah, he was basically the face of uh, cryptocurrencies. They, they, people in the market embraced him. He um, was, it seems like he was a positive face in that he was, uh, um, self-assuming, he was down to earth, he wore these cork cargo shorts, t-shirts, and the wild unkempt hair, and he stepped in to save others. This summer, when other cryptocurrency-related companies struggled and failed, FTX stepped in to buy them and save them. So you see a sort of this J.P. Morgan type character, and, and to others in the market, some of whom are under a little bit of suspicion, um, under uh, um, investigation at the time, were foreigners. Sam Bankman-Fried is an American. Um, yes, he operated out of the Bahamas, but uh, he's an American that um, who gave money to different politicians. He himself gave to a lot of Democrats, but his number two gave almost as my, much money to Republicans. So um, they were comfortable uh, on, in Washington, D.C., in Capitol, and yeah, he was on top of the world, as was FTX, the, the second largest. They had this trading firm that seemed to be doing well. And then lo and behold, it all fell apart. And now um, he's under indictment and arrest and um, uh, is sort of uh, people pointing fingers at him as running a fraud, as he suggested. So let's talk about the relationship between FTX and Alameda. You mentioned Alameda before. What was Alameda and how does that figure into this process? Yeah, so in uh, 2017, he started a trading firm called Alameda Research. I've written extensively about the early days when he, uh, even though he came from this firm, uh, Jane Street, which is well-respected, it has risk controls, has uh, all kinds of uh, um, accounting and other systems that you would expect in a big firm. When he started, when he being Sam Bankfried started his, tr- his own trading firm, they had none of these kind of things. And... Others at his firm, colleagues, said, Sam, we, we can't operate like this. We can't commingle funds. We need risk systems, controls, etc." And he disagreed. He thought that would slow them down. He didn't see the need for that kind of stuff. So just fast forwarding to what, what's happened, um, I don't think he has a leg to stand on if he says, well, geez, I didn't think about it. I, I didn't, didn't cross my mind about having risk systems and the dangers of commingling funds, etc." He was warned about that kind of stuff, and he came from a firm that um, that had that, that 
fought this stuff up, worried about this stuff, had concern, had these systems. So um, anyway, back in 2017 and 2018, he gets this thing off the off the ground. Alameda Research. It has a shaky beginning. It, it starts off about $100 million, loses some money, some investors pull out. And a lot of the people I write about who had those early concerns quit and left because there was a power play and they didn't like what Sam was doing. Um, so there was a choppy early start to this firm in 2018. But they uh, recover and they um, continue operating. And then in 2019, he says, hey, I'm going to start an exchange, a cryptocurrency exchange. And that was FTX. So these two firms were sort of symbiotic. The Alameda Research was a trading firm. It tried to make money. It was a market maker stepping in and buying on the sister exchange, which was FTX. So there were two firms that operated sort of symbiotically. You know, you mentioned um, him not having a leg to stand on if he says he didn't really know about it. I didn't watch the interviews that he gave, frankly, I was very surprised that he gave those interviews after the spotlight was put on him. I know the report said that his lawyers told him not to interview. He interviewed. And I did catch one interview. I think it was the one that the New York times did with deal book where he was sort of sitting there saying to the, you know, in answer to the question, yeah, I, I didn't know about it. I could have been more careful, but I thought things were being handled, you know, uh, forget the cop out answer or the nature of that answer. But do you think that might be their defense or his defense that he can argue this was beneath him and he was busy, you know, big time structure and other people had to do this job? It's not his fault. Yes, that seems like it's going to be his defense or was going to be his defense. Who knows what will happen now that there are charges. He spoke to pretty much everyone in the world of media. Um, I spoke to him once myself. Uh, and his argument was, I messed up. I feel bad. I feel awful for those who lost money. Again, there's about eight billion, eight to ten billion dollars of, of money we can't trace right now. So that's lost money. It's it's big investors, but some small ones as well, foreigners, but some Americans as well. And right, that seems to be the argument. And it is refreshing that someone um, under scrutiny and uh, under, under arrest is still. Uh, talking to the media, uh, we the media um, need answers. So it's good to have somebody um, discussing these things with us. And, and he didn't seem to to sh to shrink and, and shirk. And he um, answered calls and went on shows, etc. But the flip side is right. If that's the argument that he didn't know better, well, first of all, he needed to know better. That he, he ran the company. You can't just run something into the ground and you say, I, I, I messed up, I'm sorry. But, but beyond that, the other point is that they boasted, he and his company, FTX, boasted that they had good risk management. And that's how they sold themselves. So you can't tell, you, tell investors, equity investors in the company itself I'm talking about, and, and customers, clients who trade on the, the platform, you can't say, hey, we have really good risk systems. And then when they lose billions and billions say, geez, I wish we had risk systems. Wish someone had told me about that. You, you, because that undercuts your own argument. It, you, you've um, misled them uh, at the least. You know, it's the lawyer's fault, right? <laughs> it always as, is, yeah. As a recovering lawyer, I could say that. Let's talk about the relationship between FTX and Binance. I mean, arguably, Binance is really the one that uncovered FTX's misdeeds where it started to tumble downward. 
What was that? Yeah, well, I, I would say they uncovered them, but they helped push them off the cliff. So Binance is the largest exchange, crypto exchange. It's run by a guy that we call CZ. He's a, a Chinese guy. They, they've got their own investigations going on, and there are investigations of Binance, and I, I can't weigh in uh, one way or the other if they get a slap on the risk or, or, or risk that are, or not. And they, I think they would argue, people close to Binance have argued to me that, well, um, this is cryptocurrency. These aren't regu- registered um, investments. So um, we weren't sure um, how that behavior should be. It's, it's, it hasn't been regulated. So if we did something we shouldn't have done, it wasn't conscious and, and um, they can make that argument. But be that as it may, um, CZ and Binance uh, had a rivalry going with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, a friendly rivalry, some might say, a, a fierce rivalry, others would argue. And um, in November, when questions arose about the balance sheet of FTX and Alameda, and it turned out, it was a leaked document, it turned out that that balance sheet was much riskier than we all had realized, and there were all kinds of tokens that FTX itself had developed that, were, that it was relying on uh, on its balance sheet. Um, that, that was the time when CZ and Binance started selling those, those same tokens. They had those tokens. They had once had equity interest in FTX, and they sold it, and in exchange, in part, got these tokens. And right then and there, when, when the pressure was building on FTX, CZ tweeted that they were selling these tokens, and that kind of pushed FTX and Sam Bankman-Fring off the cliff, as it were, and um, it spiraled. It's it's like any other kind of bank run. People started pulling their money out, their accounts from FTX, and the rest is history. They went under. So SBF was quoted to have said that he might become the world's first trillionaire. Putting aside the fraud, the criminality charges, and all that, how much of this fiasco was just pure hubris? Yeah, so a lot of it has to be hubris. A lot of it has to be um, an ambitious young man who got in over his head. But one needs to also consider the possibility of outright fraud. And it's not for me to determine that kind of stuff. We'll see what the legal system says. But there's an argument that from the get-go, there was fraud in, uh, that was took place in that they were using customer money, uh, customer um, funds, from the FTX exchange and doing all kinds of different things with it, including um, um, giving it away, donating, um, charitable and otherwise, a little bit of charity, and politicians as well, but also buying real estate, losing it. It's not clear what else they did with it. So there's a possibility of outright fraud, according to the government from the get-go. I want to ask the question of how, like how, how, how can this happen? You had so many mainstream investors, lenders, big shops in the venture capital space, how is it that something like this, and this isn't the first time, right? You had Theranos. There were so many examples of this kind of pull the wool over the investor slash customer's public's eye. How does something like this happen with all the laws on the books? It's a great question, Jason. It's one that uh, people in the crypto market, but broader financial markets are trying to figure out. Once again, sophisticated investors messed up. And I don't even want to understate it by saying messed up. They embarrassed themselves. They These are um, among the, the best, the highest paid, most respected kinds of investors out there. And 
they did zero to little due diligence. The kinds of things that you and I would never think of not doing, um, checking if Sam Bankman Freed and his company had an independent board of directors, checking if they had an auditor, checking if they had risk systems, just basic stuff. And the venture capitalists either didn't care or didn't check. Either one is, is embarrassing. Um, and these are the top names in the world of venture capital. Sequoia, top names in hedge funds. Uh, Dan Loeb's Third Point. Tiger. These are brand name firms on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley. And they invested in FTX as a business without um, caring that this company was run by young people who had no risk systems, who seemingly didn't care about these dangers, commingling funds, things like that, that would, behavior that would not be acceptable in any other kind of business. Was it the hype of cryptocurrency, the FOMO, not wanting to miss out on this new currency? Was it his F SBF's charisma? What do you, th or is it all of the above or something else? What do you think caused these people to just jump in with both feet? So it's my belief that venture capital is a certain model and they want home runs and don't mind strikeouts, meaning they have a portfolio of investments and they assume 80% of them, 70% of them will be strikeouts or very minimal returns. They need home runs. And if you're looking for a home run investment, you want someone, uh, a CEO, a founder who is different, who is maybe even odd, maybe unusual, thinking in different ways than m most others. So Sam Bankman Freed had an image that appealed to these kinds of investors. Again, if you're looking for someone to hit a home run, you don't want a guy wearing a button-down shirt who um, talks about the risk controls in his firm, who behaves properly and respectfully, frankly. You want somebody who's going to break the mold and doesn't need the money, doesn't want the money. And it's going to remind you of a little bit of Madoff and that Madoff didn't want your money and people threw money at him. I don't, I'm in no way am I implying or suggesting that Sam Bankman Freed was Madoff like. That's for the court to decide. But he was similar to Madoff in that he acted like he didn't need the money. He would, he would raise money from guys like Sequoia, this big venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. He would raise that money while playing video games, while um, on, a, on a video call playing games on his computer as if he doesn't need the money. And you would think that would repulse the investors, but that makes them even more eager to give his, their money to him. It's sort of counterintuitive, but in that world, you want somebody who's got the unkempt hair and the cargo shorts and the T-shirt, the, the ratty T-shirt, because he might hit a home run. And yeah, he won't hit a single or a double, and he won't um, protect um, your money like... Uh, a more conventional investor might, but he's got a higher chance of hitting a home run. And it's all about home runs. Now you can criticize these venture capital firms and hedge funds. And, and I would, and I will, and I do because 
they are not doing their job. They don't do, they're not doing due diligence, proper due diligence. And they charge an arm and a leg to their investors. And the implication is, the suggestion is that they, they are doing all that kind of work, but they ignored it. And um, because it's a small part of their portfolio, they're not being crushed by these losses. Well, if it turns out that this was based on a stolen ball and bat and bases and even baseball field, just to use your home run analogy, I hope, I hope they took a big lesson from this. Let's talk about politics because you mentioned politics. And my understanding is that he gave nearly $40 million of federal contributions, uh, probably the sixth biggest political donor and largest funder of the Democrats after George Soros. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not a stop-the-steal guy, right? I think there may have been some voting irregularities and there are issues with voting in the United States now that need to be carefully considered and, and carefully um, planned and perhaps changed. But I'm not a stop-the-steal guy. Yet, in a way, what I'm thinking is this is a variation of a stolen, not a stolen election, but votes that were stolen because so much money was pumped into the system, but that money may have may have um, been achieved through ill-gotten gains, through criminality, through fraud. Is Congress, are states looking at how stolen money of this magnitude is not dissimilar from uh, other countries trying to manipulate our elections? So I don't share that view. Um, listen, is there too much money from wealthy people and others um, in politics, clearly, certainly. Um, but Dan Bankman-Fried, as big as he was as a donor uh, to politicians, again, his number two, Ryan Salami, his president, gave nearly as much to Republican causes. I would argue they were hedging their bets and they were trying to influence politicians, which is awful stuff, um, potentially. Um but, you know, you got to go back to how, why are they able to do this stuff? It was uh, a law. You, you're, you're, you probably know the history better than I do, but um, it was a change that was inspired by Republican donors. Um, and, you know, I've written about guys like Bob Mercer and others on the right um, who benefited, who pushed for these changes and, and took advantage of these changes, the ability to, to, to make these donations. So, you know, both parties and, and politicians of both sides have um, used the use the changes in, in the ability of, of these guys to, to throw money around, and and it, it makes for good t television, and, and people get outraged on both the right and the left. I mean, the Koch brothers are evil. George Soros is evil. Everybody's evil, and yet no one's make going back to court to try to make any changes, and the politicians love it, and we as citizens. Suffer. So I, I don't see any evidence that Stan Baker-Fried's donations had any impact on the election, frankly. And, you know, a lot of the money is wasted when they throw it at politicians and, and, elect, and elections, as you, as you know, as well as I do. And sometimes it, 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 it does pay off. So I, I just find it's grotesque that both, both sides, wealthy people on both parties, how they throw money around in Washington. Let's talk about charity. So in theory, you know, an interesting message to give young adults. I have a couple of young adults myself as kids. Uh, you know, make a lot of money and then give charity. What do you think the impact is to these young adults when somebody 
who maybe young adults look to as a hero, especially with the philosophy of make a lot of money and then give charity, turned out to be, you know, it'll be up to the courts, as you say, maybe turned out to be a fraud. Are they going to be disillusioned? And how do you undisillusion them from this? It's a good question. So I've talked to, I've talked to Sam Baker-Fried, I've talked to other people in that world, this um, effective altruism world, and they all seem to be serious-minded about uh, their charitable endeavors and their goals. And I give them credit. I give them a lot of credit. They, even at young age, like you said, want to do good and are thinking about it. So I, I, I want to applaud that. But that said, this does undercut that entire movement. There are he was their their um, poster boy for effective altruism for this idea of making a lot of money at a young age, so you give it away in effective ways down the road. It all seems hypocritical now because he was he wasn't making the money allegedly. He allegedly he was stealing the money, so it does undercut that whole approach and, and and there's a real uh questioning looking in the mirror in that world now so does it send a message to young people yeah it makes them even more cynical about those who talk about their charity and and seem serious minded about it and maybe they throw their hands up and uh, i i agree listen the, the idea of effective altruism is that too much money goes to causes where it's just self-aggrandizing art museums, university endowments where they don't need the money. People just put their name on schools, buildings, etc. We all can imagine all the wasted money and we roll our eyes. And these young people, again, I think they're serious about it. They seem to say, you know what, we want to give it in a, in a better way. They're focused on things like uh, malaria nets where, where you can see the impact and, and lives that are saved. So uh, again, I want to applaud them. But yeah, this fiasco has undermined that whole effort, that whole movement. Regulations require the segregation of customer funds from capital used by the company for trading. It seems uh, FTX uh, used those customer funds. And again, this is a little bit of a similar question that I asked earlier. How is it that something like that could happen? Is it simply the honor system? They could get away with it unless they get caught? Or are there controls in place that somehow FTX managed to breach? Well, okay, uh, it's complicated. First of all, this is cryptocurrencies we're talking about. It's not even clear if these are investments. It's still it's going back and forth. T- technically, maybe you can get away with this kind of stuff. But that said, FTX promised their clients they would not do these things. So in their written agreements, they say they're not going to use their funds elsewhere. There are some other there are some other language that maybe some lawyer can point to and say, well, technically, they were able to use their money, but it just seems misleading what they've done to clients. It's it is interesting to note that the the feds haven't charged in the SEC, etc. They didn't charge Sam Bankman-Fried with defrauding his customers, his clients, his trading clients. They charged him with defrauding his investors in FTX itself, his equity investors, those who bought a piece of his business. And the argument being that he told them, hey, uh, I'm going to run this properly and with risk systems, etc. And, and he didn't. Um, they could have done a little due diligence. It took me only a week or two to write a story showing how he disregarded 
all all dis, uh, all attempts to in, instill to implement risk systems and others in his company. Um, so how did he get away with it? He got away with it by not embracing these basic basic um, controls, risk and otherwise, and commingling and preventing commingling. He, he did not do any of that stuff. Did they commingled and they used money left and right. The question will come down, and I think it'll be an interesting legal case. Well, in the crypto market. Um, can you can you do this kind of thing? Does the language that they told investors um, hold? Um, was is there other language that will allow them to get away with it, some of that stuff, etc.? What do you think this means for the crypto for crypto investments generally? It means it's hard to trust anyone in the crypto market from here on. So. Will it be forever? I don't know. Maybe it, this is just another setback. In a few years, there'll be new players that emerge, and they'll be more trustworthy, and they'll have learned these lessons. That's possible. But at least for the next few years, I don't know how you trust anyone in that world. Last question. What's next for SPF and FTX? Uh, so he faces 10 years plus in prison. and. We'll see how the trial goes. He'll get some good lawyers. He says he only has $100,000 left to his name, so he can't afford the best lawyers, but I have a feeling he's got real estate elsewhere. He's got these interests in the Bahamas, so he should be able to sell some of that stuff. And it will be interesting legal um, questions that will be raised in, in the proceedings. But yeah, he's got his hands full, and he's... Um, and his company is bankrupt, and they're going to be looking for these funds. So there's about eight to ten billion dollars that, just like with Madoff, it took us years to track that stuff down. We were able to, not we, um, the, um, those in charge were able to tr track down like 70, 80 percent of the funds. And, and, and that was just a question of going to the um, those who took money out of Madoff and getting it back. So we'll do some of that. We'll go to Giselle. We'll go to. Tom Brady will go to those kinds of people, Larry David, and say, hey, you, you profited from FDX. We want that money back. Other money may be lost. So this will be a really complicated one. I know I said last question, but just touching upon what you just said. So you see them, like in the Madoff case, the clawbacks of money that people did pocket from this, that people did profit from this, um, could be at risk. Yes, I really do. It's, a, it's potentially all fraudulent money. Um, misbegotten money, the, the, those who, who've lost money um, may be entitled to that. I don't know how Larry David can cash a check from FTX. If, if it was allegedly, if it was a fraudulent endeavor from the get-go, which is kind of what the charges suggest, then he took money from that b business and, and could be forced to hand it back and the others as well. Okay, so this is really the last question. I apologize, <laughs> but I want to tie it back to politics. Arguably, then, that would include the political donations, right? In other words, do you think if they go claw back money from those who profited, could they try that from the parties or candidates who took those donations? Yeah, you know better than I do. Those politicians are probably going to be the last people to agree to hand that money over. Uh, but yeah, you could see them going after them, and, and they should be entitled to go. Oh, yeah, I don't know why uh, a politician should be able to to have to cash checks and, and hold on to checks from FTX when customers are, are, are searching for their for their money. 
Interesting stuff indeed. Well, Greg Zuckerman, thank you so much. Thanks for joining The Diplomat on Newsweek. Always a lot of fun, Jason. I hope you found this conversation with Greg Zuckerman, a writer at The Wall Street Journal, about FTX, about Sam Bankman-Fried, interesting and informative. There's going to be a lot written about those guys for years to come. So many complicated issues. We touched on only the beginning of it. Uh, Please do tune in. This is The Diplomat. Brought to you by Newsweek. And do remember, if you didn't pick up a copy of my book, In the Path of Abraham, it is available on Amazon. If you want to learn about the Middle East today, today's Middle East, pick up a copy. It's a great gift for the holiday season to anyone you like, to anyone who loves reading, to everyone who wants to understand today's Middle East. Again, In the Path of Abraham, go to Amazon and order it. Thanks for listening.